Great. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me across the Atlantic uh, this morning uh, to speak. Um, sort of calls to Newcastle on the Brexit issue and, and so on. But um, I therefore want to start by provoking you all by arguing this, that populist foreign policy, and I'll use the example of Trump and Brexit, are doomed to disappoint. I gave this talk once before and I said doomed to fail. Maybe that's a little bit strong, but you get the idea. Um, this is the basic argument, that democratic populism is an unsustainable way of pursuing foreign policy, um, and that populist leaders fail to implement most of their concrete promises uh, while in office, and particularly during elections. They instead eventually adopt and extend the policies of their opponents. Okay, so fail to implement. I don't mean, because this is true of all politicians, uh, that politicians fail to achieve the ultimate goals for which they're, um, that they're seeking. I, I don't mean that they achieve only 50% of what they seek to achieve. That's true of all politics. I mean they literally reverse policy and end up very quickly doing the opposite of what they said uh, they were going to do. Um, and this relates to the facts theme here because this happens ultimately because the technical facts work their way through the political system and affect what uh, politicians can do. But the logic is in part political and it's very important to include the political logic and the political facts as well as the technocratic ones when we make these uh, assessments. Um, so I'll start by talking about Trump. And then I'll briefly talk about Brexit. There are people who are more knowledgeable than me uh, here on that issue. So the argument about Trump is very simply, we have a year to go on. President Trump has implemented almost none of the, of the promised concrete foreign policy objectives. Um, and the result is that the substantive policy we see today, not in rhetorical uh, patina, but in concrete substance, is more or less what it was under Clinton and Obama. So I just want to go around the world briefly here and talk about the different things that Trump has done and then we'll talk about why this is true. Not just why it happens to be true in this case, but why it must be true for populists. Um, so we can start with China. That was the first week of the administration. Uh, when Trump said first thing in office, it was part of his first 24 hours agenda would be to change uh, trade policy uh, with China. Every president of the United States since Nixon has gone in saying he's going to fundamentally reorient policy toward Asia and change everything. Um, and much heralded in the papers, he reversed course, started dealing with China uh, to manage various issues of common interest, both economically and particularly on the Korean uh, Peninsula. Uh, there's Afghanistan. Uh, so Trump has a long record of saying that the Afghanistan war uh, is a nonsensical enterprise, that it's a bad thing for the United States, that people are getting killed in Afghanistan for no purpose. Americans are getting killed in Afghanistan for no purpose. <coughs> Already during the election, he softened that rhetoric and took almost no clear position. And then for seven months in the administration, he sought to find an alternative to the current policy in Afghanistan. Um, he threatened to fire the guy, the general that was running the policy. He, he threatened to privatize it. He, found, tried to, he fought a long rearguard action against what finally emerged, which was another mini-surge 
in Afghanistan, just like all those the United States has done uh, before. Uh, Japan, you'll recall that Trump took the position, not just with Japan, but other places that we'll get to, like NATO, uh, that the United States should fundamentally revise its policy of uh, a nuclear shield and defense uh, alliance with Japan, that these countries should be allowed to go their own way, defend themselves, um, and if necessary, uh, have nuclear weapons. Um, and this, uh, uh, and then reversed policy on that relatively quickly. I should go back to Afghanistan <laughs> just for a moment, because it's interesting what Trump said in August when he actually switched policy on Afghanistan. The quote is instructive. He said, um, having said it was a terrible mistake uh, to get involved, and so on, he then said in his speech about Afghanistan, you know, decisions are very different when you actually sit in the Oval Office, <laughs> and then said the same kind of pablum that every American policymaker always says about foreign adventures, which is, uh, the consequences of rapid exit are both predictable and unacceptable. The United States must seek an honorable and enduring outcome worthy of the tremendous sacrifices that have been made. A logic those of you who are familiar with the history of the Vietnam War will recognize uh, well. So Trump may have been right originally about Afghanistan, uh, but he ended up pursuing the establishment policy and justifying it just like other people do. Uh, then there was NATO. So I was at the Munich Security Conference in February of last year. Uh, when they sent out uh, the officials from the United States, headed by Vice President Pence, who said, on behalf of the President of the United States, I uh, wholeheartedly support the NATO alliance. Uh, this was another alliance that Trump had said uh, we should uh, threaten to or carry, uh, reduce our commitment to as Americans. Um, and some people argue that he did this because the Europeans are increasing defense spending, but actually there have been no significant increases in defense spending beyond what was previously planned while he was uh, uh, running for office. Um, then there's Korea. So Trump claimed there were new alternatives in Korea, and particularly argued that if you bargain hard, you can get something different than, if you, uh, than what uh, weaklings like President Obama uh, get. Trump's a big believer in tough bargaining. He ends up in exactly the same position that every American administration has been, dealing with the North Koreans, uh, which is trying to bring the Chinese on board, um, uh, uh, having covert talks by a, a secondary channel, and eventually moving toward offering them aid, uh, which is what's going on uh, now. Uh, both he and McMaster, latter being somewhat surprising, the National Security Advisor argued that there were military options in Korea, but we've seen no military options and everybody knows there aren't. Um, then we have uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, so Trump really did make good on his uh, promise to get rid of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but let's remember that was a bipartisan promise. Uh, Clinton had made it too. It was dead in the water. In Congress, uh, Trump was giving up something uh, that uh, wasn't really his to give up. Um, then there's the policy toward Russia and Ukraine. So tr Trump has been, for uh, reasons that are currently being investigated officially, ambivalent toward Russia and Ukraine, but he has pursued increasingly uh, the same policy as other Western democracies with regard to Ukraine, including military support. 
um, and was blocked by Congress from doing anything about sanctions uh, or anything else. Um, then we have uh, Britain. Uh, so there were various uh, promises or quasi-promises made about uh, assisting Britain, uh, special trade agreements with Britain, trying to be on the side of the Brexiteers. Uh, you should never trust the Americans coming and saying that they're going to give you a good trade deal because we Americans have uh, the most unruly and unmanageable uh, trade policy system of any major democracy. Uh, and in fact, uh, Trump has done little um, to uh, assist Brexit um, at level of publicity, some things that are negative, uh, and in fact is picking fights over various trade issues um, uh, with Britain uh, as well. Uh, NAFTA, so here's an interesting one. Uh, Trump threatened to uh, uh, renegotiate NAFTA uh, wholesale, uh, and if it didn't work, pull out. There is a rediscussion of NAFTA uh, going on, uh, but it's got bogged down now in the same kind of issues that are constantly issues of trade, discussion between the United States and its North American partners, um, uh, bombardier planes and, and softwood lumber uh, and things like that. Not really any fundamental uh, change. Mexico. Uh, Trump promised that the Mexicans would pay uh, to build the wall along the southern border of the United States. Uh, the Mexican president flatly refused uh, because he would have been kicked out of office if he didn't. Uh, and now he's trying to do a deal with the Democrats to figure out how the United States is going to pay be paid for said wall. Very important to distinguish between things that are domestic policy issues in the United States, like whether or not you're going to build a wall or how you're going to fund it, and foreign policy issues which require uh, the adherence of other governments like Mexico, uh, where Trump's has failed. Um, Iraq, um, Trump uh, and Syria. Uh, Trump argued that he would either pull out or largely ramp up U.S. force pressure in this area, military action. He's increased it a little bit. If you look at the number of uh, sorties flown by uh, uh, U.S. Air Force over time, you see an uh, increase uh, over uh, the last four or five years, uh, pretty steady. There's been a, some kick up in the last year, maybe 20%, um, but nothing really fundamentally different. Um, then we have climate change. Um, this was an entirely symbolic act. Uh, Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, but the United States wasn't committed to anything substantive uh, on that. All the activity in the United States that's meaningful takes place at the state and lo local level, and that activity has redoubled since. Um, there's Iran. Uh, Trump promised uh, that he would either strike Iran or pull out of the nuclear deal uh, with Iran. Um, he did decertify Iran, but decertifying Iran is a presidential judgment which has no meaning unless the Congress votes to actually do something uh, like pulling out of the agreement. And as of yet, there's no evidence that Congress uh, will do that. Uh, which was that? Another global one. Um, Forget which one that is. So you go around the world and you see all these areas where Trump has failed to achieve um, what he says he's going to do. Now, a few caveats, a few things that sort of look like successes but really aren't. Number one, 
Trump has done some things that are symbolic. So purely symbolic policies are within the realm uh, of possibility for a populist president. You can move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. It's, it's been in Jerusalem de facto for the last 30 years, um, but you can change the name. Uh, that has some rhetorical consequences globally, but it's not a substantive policy action. Paris Climate Accord, as I talked about before, decertifying Iran or praising South Africa, uh, Saudi Arabia. These are things uh, that the President can do but don't uh, uh, rise to the level of concrete foreign policy decisions. He can also make resource choices, but only resource choices favored already by a Republican Congress. Remember in the United States, it's by and large the Congress, not the President, that makes money decisions. Um, and the Congress is setting about reallocating funds from civilian to military spending, underfunding the State Department, spending the Pentagon more, uh, moving from conventional to nuclear weapons. But it would be a mistake to think this is Trump. This is the Republicans. This is what all Republican administrations do. Um, and Trump is important in that he does not veto that action, um, but he is not uh, the fundamental reason. Gray area domestic policies, again, if favored by the Congress, which has to approve them. Um, so something like treatments of migrants or something that may have great international effect, tax reform, uh, are essentially domestic policies that in a powerful country like the United States have a large international impact. If the Republicans favor them, um, Trump goes along with them. Remember that tax reform of the kind we have seen, cutting taxes for wealthy people, is not what Trump promised to do or ran on or, as far as I can tell, particularly believes it. Um, then there's the hypothetical possibility of a crisis. So how many of us would feel comfortable with Trump with his finger on the button in a crisis where you had to make decisions within hours or minutes? We have not tested that proposition yet. Um, but that is an area where any president, populist or otherwise, does have a considerable amount of influence. Consider the case um, of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where John F. Kennedy's uh, view was very important. And finally, non-decisions. Um, myself, not being favorable to Trump, my wife worked for Hillary Clinton, um, I think I'm more worried about things that Trump doesn't do that he should than things that Trump does do that he shouldn't. Um, and there may be areas where the United States should exercise leadership or take a long-term view um, where it is uh, not. So broadly speaking, we can say Trump's been unsuccessful at changing the su substantive direction of U.S. foreign policy. Same story with Brexit. Here I'll be brief because I'm preaching to, to, I guess, the choir. Um, whatever the future legal status of the UK, almost all the substantive policies associated with Brexit are unlikely ever to be implemented. Um, so this is the famous Hotel California effect. For those of you who are West Coast American music fans, uh, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. So you can change the legal form of Britain's relationship to Europe, but changing the policies is much more difficult. How do we know? We just need to look at the negotiations over the past uh, 18 months. Most of the policies, Britain, to a remarkable degree and from the start, does not want to change the status of migrants currently in Britain, the customs union, all this kind of thing. Um, 
it lacks the bargaining power to change the other 10% without paying a high price. So we already see in this latest round Britain making concessions right, left, and center, but even on somewhat symbolic issues like the role of the European Court of Justice, um, because it simply lacks the bargaining power uh, to do more. And that's because it lacks alternatives. So as I said, signing trade agreements with the U.S. is a losing proposition. WTO is inadequate. The only thing worse than trying to sign them with the United States is trying to sign them with China or India. Um, <laughs> and uh, then you could try, as some enthusiasts said early on, to make Britain into Singapore, deregulate wildly, uh, but that doesn't seem very uh, realistic. Since popular and parliamentary majorities oppose a so-called hard Brexit, you're already in the space of negotiating what on the margin uh, is going to change. And <clears throat> now that might be different if other countries in droves were following the UK example and undermining the EU, but that's not true. Um, so what's left to ask, uh, what's left to ask is, will Brexit happen at all? We were just talking about this previously, and I think that's a 50-50 proposition. Um, but if it does happen, what will be the legal form of the new relationship? What few policies might the UK be willing to change? And how much worse off uh, will it be for doing so? All right, so let me close um, by making an argument about why what you've just seen must happen. It is not just that the United States and Britain were incompetently governed or unlucky and therefore populist policies failed, um, but they must fail. And that raises another puzzle, which is, why do we think that they're succeeding? Okay, so to answer that question, you have to ask yourself, what is populism? All right, so it is not a particular substantive set of goals, right? Every politician says, I'm governing of, by, and for the people, in Lincoln's words. Um, Every politician says they're opposed to some establishment that disagrees with them. Um, and every politician favors specific policies. And you can be, favor some of the policies that populists favor these days, like those that are listed, without being a populist. Populism is a style of governance, it, or a style of justifying your governance. And it's based on three things. First, the principle of simplicity. The truth, populists tell you, is simple. The public should intuit it without expert or elite intermediation or advice. Okay. Second, identity. The reason why it's easily intuitive by the public is because it rests on communal beliefs, things we all believe together, not concrete calculations of interest. And that's why you see such a role for national, religious, racial, or class identities in populist movements. And third, it's anti-pluralist. It says unilateral or extreme solutions are preferable to compromises with your political opponents. All right, so that's what uh, populism is. What happens when it enters the foreign policy realm? Why does it fail? because it has to be implemented. And implementation reveals that the real world is the reverse of those three propositions. It's complicated, it's concrete, and it's cooperative. Okay, what do I mean by that? Um, 
Policy implementation is an extremely detailed and complicated thing, particularly in foreign policy where we're dealing with things that people have relatively little experience with. It's often counterintuitive to people who are not dealing with it on an everyday basis. It's not very salient in the minds of the public, so actually that reality of foreign policy is quite different than the reality that voters perceive or is talked about uh, in elections. Um, what's more, um, it's, it's concrete in that it involves the management of tangible real interests. So as long as you're saying, let's make America great again, or let's get a better deal from the Chinese, nobody really knows what you're talking about. But the instant you say, that means we're going to sanction this, or we're going to sign an agreement that says that, or we're going to deal with softwood lumber like that, people with very concrete interests come out of the woodwork and they dominate policy because they know what they want and they care very much about the, what they want and they tend to be powerful people. And third, and particularly important for foreign policy, policy implementation is cooperative. You can rarely achieve a perfect extreme solution when you're implementing policy and almost never in foreign policy because by definition it involves a deal between your country and another country. Uh, that's the Mexican case I talked about before. You need the agreement of the other side, and if they say no, then you've got to start to compromise. So what happens, like clockwork, when you take these populist foreign policies and try to implement them is they get bogged down in complexity, tangible interests, and negotiations with other countries, which are the reason why the policy previously was the way that it was. Foreign policy magnifies these things, so Trump has been relatively unsuccessful in domestic policy, except where he's found things that the Republican Congress wanted, but particularly so um, in uh, foreign policy. All right, final point. So if all this is right, you're probably thinking, yeah, you get this professor from Princeton and he tells me all this stuff, but nobody believes this. Everybody thinks Trump um, is a tremendously successful leader. So why do people believe something so obviously at odds with the facts? And the reason is because the people they read tell them so, okay? So why do so many people believe populism is succeeding? Because they willingly make exactly the same error that populists themselves make. They mistake talk for action. Now who are these fellow travelers? who do this and convince all of us it's true. Number one, populations, politicians themselves. Not just the populists, but their opponents as well. Okay? Journalists, commentators, and policy analysts, and scholars. I'll go after my own profession to show you I'm even-handed. Um, symbolic success bolsters popular support, particularly if it doesn't cost you anything. So the optimal policy for a populist is a policy that looks like it's succeeding but actually doesn't trigger all those concrete interests that could bog it down uh, and show you that it really is a costly policy. And opponents want to sound the alarm. So nobody's as hostile to the talk I'm make, uh, giving now as a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat who wants to tell you that Trump is the threat around which we have to mobilize. Journalists. They report what politicians say, almost never what they do, and almost never what they don't do, so that we don't actually know 
uh, what politicians are or aren't doing in foreign policy. Year-end discussion on CNN between journalists, they said, what's it been like to report the last year? They said, it was unlike any other year, it was very easy. We waited for four o'clock and when the Trump tweets came out, we reported them. <laughs> right? Well, if that's where you're getting your news, no wonder you think this guy is successful. And they tend to highlight worst-case speculation, not dull good news. Brexit example. People said, this populist stuff is spreading. It's going to spread to France. I counted the number of articles in the English language on Marine Le Pen, a person who never had any chance of governing France, like zero. Okay? The number of articles uh, published running up to the first round of the French election and in between, uh, 11,000. The number of articles afterward, when it became clear she could never govern France and wasn't going to, uh, a few hundred. Okay? So that's a bias. And finally, scholars, my profession likes to be politically correct. Um, so it goes along with these sounding the alarm people. What's more, it's a lot of fun to chase ambulances, talk about current day issues, but we should be doing what we do best as scholars, which is to think deeper and longer term about things and see them for what they are. So um, populism is less than a threat of a threat than we think. We could talk about other cases about which I think this is true, not just France as mentioned, but Hungary, Poland, and elsewhere, but I hope I've done enough to provoke you already. Thank you very much.